Amen. Good to see you tonight. Why don't you turn and say hi to a couple people and then you can have a seat. Proud of you for fighting the cold weather and coming out anyway and choosing God over the World Series too. That's <laughs> impressive. I shouldn't say that or people will go, oh, the World Series is on, <laughs> I'm leaving. <laughs> but it's great to see it. What'd you say, Don? The yeah, the angels are done, so it's not really a World Series. <laughs> Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. As we're going through this book of 2 Corinthians, we've come to the sixth chapter. If you were here last week or you remember chapter 5, it ended by emphasizing the nature of what God is doing, and that is reconciliation. People who were created to be close to God and close to each other and a creation that was designed to be a perfect reflection of God and his nature had, because of sin, become all messed up and divided. And the gospel, what God did when he sent Jesus to die for us, the point of all that is to pull everything back into line, to make what was wrong right, to fix it. And as Paul had said, God has given us the message of reconciliation. As Christians, we get to announce to people that things don't have to stay messed up. God has done something that can make it possible for all the pieces to come together. Individual reconciliation as God takes our broken lives and puts them back together. Reconciliation between us and God, reconciliation between people who are divided from other people, reconciliation for an entire planet that's damaged and that will one day be back again reflecting all that God wanted it to reflect. And so this glorious message of reconciliation is, is the message that is given to each of us and we have the opportunity to share that with others. Now, building on that here, continuing into chapter 6, Paul says in verse 1, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. The idea of us working together, and in our translation it says with him, but that's in italics, that's not in the original, and yet clearly from the context, that's the idea. God wants to bring a message of reconciliation, and he wants us to be able to do that. And he wants us to do it together. He wants people to be able to see us and what God's doing in our lives and get the message of forgiveness, the message of grace, the message that what's upside down can be turned right side up. And we not only get to do this together, 
but together we represent God in his heart because we are the way that he has chosen to communicate his message for the most part. Now, there are times when God comes and directly addresses someone or uses a means other than a human witness, but those are major exceptions to the rule. For the most part, God uses people like us. For almost all of us, somehow God revealed himself by using people. And so Paul said, when you understand the magnitude of reconciliation, that it's universe-wide, that it is rectifying that which was destroyed back in uh, Genesis chapter 3, and then you realize you're a part of this. You get to carry this message. Sometimes we think of our responsibility as Christians as being, we have to do it. You know, we need to do the work of God. And I think a lot of times this is because people who are trying to get others to help out, um, maybe we're short of volunteers or something. And so we lay a big trip on people and try to make them feel guilty if they're not carrying this message. But when you really understand the message of grace, no one has to tell you to share it with others. You don't want to keep it a secret. Grace changes your life in such a way that you can't wait to pass it on to others, to communicate it with others. You look at others who are so bound up in legalism or bound up in their addictions and sins, and you realize that's who I was, but God has set me free. And you don't want to sit and go, ah, oh, those poor suckers, I'm better than they are. You want, to, you want to go, come on, you don't have to keep living that way. And so as he says, you know, I, I'm pleading with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. It's the idea that when you understand the message of grace, on the one hand, of course, you don't want to reject it. But anyone who really understands grace isn't going to reject it. It's too good of a deal. But to understand that the reason why God is showing you his grace is so that you can then show grace to others and pass that word along to others is more what he has in mind here. And, and it's the idea of it doesn't end with you. You're not a dead end in what God wants to do. Pass the word along. He, he shared it with you so that you would be able to share it with others. And in a sense, it's wasted if you don't share it. Not only because you're robbing other people, but you're actually robbing yourself. Because the only thing that is even more enjoyable and more of a blessing than receiving grace is showing grace, communicating grace. Oh, when I first began to discover what God's grace really meant. It really had an impact on me. But when I understood and experienced that feeling of communicating it to someone else and seeing their eyes light up when they got it, it feels better to pass it on than it even does to receive it. And so in a sense, if all we do is 
take the message and internalize it, then we're missing out on the best part of what we get to do as those who can share the message of reconciliation. And then he says, and quoting um, Isaiah 49, for he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Now we probably need to turn back there for a minute just to understand the whole context of this. So turn back to Isaiah 49. The place where he is quoting from is verse 8. But let's back up a little bit. And um, start with verse 5. And now the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. This is messianic, referring to the one who would be born, but who would be the Lord. Of course, it's leading up to this great section that culminates in Isaiah 53. But he says, um, my God shall be my strength. Verse 6, indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles. He goes, it's not enough that you'll come and be the Messiah, but you're going to minister to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors to the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads. Their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst. Neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water, he will guide them. And he goes on and on to talk about how this glorious message of freedom would be spread throughout the earth, even among the Gentiles. And so this great messianic prophecy, with its special attention to the idea that prisoners would be set free among the Gentiles, now back in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is citing this and impressing upon them the fact that you guys get to be a part of this. You get to be a part of the fulfillment of what Messiah will do among the earth, among the people of the world. And so 
that which had been prophesied by Isaiah is something that every time we carry that message of grace, we are participating in setting prisoners free. We're doing messianic work. And again, going back to what he said in verse 1, that we're workers together with him. You're a part of something of eternal significance when you just take this message that God has shared with you, the grace of God. But then he says in verse 2, after quoting Isaiah 49, he says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, we often hear that quoted to tell people it's time to get saved right now. And it works good, and it's not completely off for an evangelist to say, okay, here comes the altar call. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. But in the context, understand, he's not talking to non-believers about accepting Christ. He's talking to believers. He's talking to the church and saying, now is the opportunity for you to carry my message. Now is the opportunity for you to, having received grace, to be able to communicate that message of grace. That's the work that I've called you to do. And it's an incredibly significant and joyous privilege. And this is the time to do it. It'll never be a better time than to be able to take the truth of the gospel and make sure that it gets into the hands and into the ears and into the lives of others. And when we understand the criticalness of the time, then we realize, I don't have anything more important to do than to use whatever avenues God has given me to cash in on the fact that this is the time to do the work of God. This is the time to carry that message. This is the time to invest in kingdom work. This is the time to devote what extra time and resources I have to seeing this happen. This is the time to, as I go about my daily routine, to look for opportunities to be able to share that, that word because there's no time like the present. And we don't know how long this time will last, but the time is now. And so Paul is just urging Timothy with this sense of not so much panic as it is privilege. You have an amazing message at your disposal. And you have an audience who desperately needs that message. And however you can, and again, it's not striving. It's not like, I've got to tell everybody today. But now is the day when God wants to save people. Now is the day when he wants to communicate his message. And so I want to be involved in that process. I want that to be on the front burner. I want that to be a part of my life. I don't want to be looking for some place down the road where that's going to happen. Because the time to do it is now. And he's not calling you to leave your whole present life and make a change in that. No, now is the time. So often we think, well, if I can get this in order and that happens and this works out and I can do that, then I'm going to be in a place where God can use me. 
No, it's, it's about now. It's about where you are right now, where you live right now, where you work right now, where you're at with your family right now. In every area of your life, you are in a perfect place right now in order to be used by God to carry this message of grace. And, and so he's just saying, bloom where you're planted. Do it now. Realize this isn't something you plan for, although there's nothing wrong with that. This is something whereby really all you have to do is take the opportunities that God lays right in front of you. And even as he gives you new opportunities and makes changes, all of that is going to happen because you are where you are right now. And so get your eyes off some future fantasy and be faithful at what you're doing right now. And then if God is going to shift some gears for you, he's well able to do that, but he's going to start with you where you are right now. And so that's really what he's saying when he says, now is the accepted time, now is the day of salvation. You have this message, look for opportunities to share it, right here, right now, where you are. And then he begins to talk about the ministry. Because he's been saying what an incredible privilege the ministry is, and he's talking about the nature of the message of grace, of reconciliation. And now he gives us some insight because he's, you know, Paul is challenging the Corinthians and encouraging them to have a certain mindset. And, and so now he's saying, let me share with you how this works for me. Because sometimes when you hear someone who is saying, um, you know, here's what you need to do, you lack that practical input as to exactly how it practically works and how it's working for you. And Paul doesn't want to be misleading to the Corinthians. You know, he had been there, they knew him well. Uh, others had ministered there. Timothy had ministered there a lot. That was a place, place where Timothy kind of cut his teeth in the ministry. And uh, Titus had ministered there as well. Corinth had had a lot of people come through. But now Paul gets personal. And again, remember, part of the reason for 2 Corinthians is for Paul to, in some way, defend himself against some of the bogus accusations that had been against him. And so he sort of now is self-referential in the context of what ministry is about and in the process of telling how this works itself out in his life, it completely shatters so much of the baloney that was going on there on the part of others and so many of the lies that they had directed about him without him coming right out and saying it. So he states this principle in verse 3. We give no offense. That word offense means stumbling. Um, it doesn't really mean I don't ever offend anyone. Paul offended people all the time. But the idea, as when he talks about um, you know, your weaker brother stumbling and things like that, it's talking about being a hindrance to someone getting saved. We give no offense in anything, 
that our ministry may not be blamed. Paul didn't see his ministry as being equivalent to him, but he could almost stand off as a third party and recognize that what he was involved in in ministry was in and of itself something very important that went beyond just him. But he states this basic principle and, and let them know, I want to make sure that nothing that I do personally is going to have a detrimental effect on that which God is doing through me. I don't ever want the ministry to look bad because of something that I do. I don't want people to look at me and see hypocrisy and things like that in me and then therefore think poorly of all the ministry that God has used me in. Not only there in Corinth, but personally with all the young pastors that he had mentored, in Philippi, all the other churches that he had started, all the places that he was ministering to, even at a distance like Rome and other places, the places where he had influenced others in Jerusalem. Paul was saying, I don't want to risk all of that by doing something that will confuse people, that will stumble people. And I think this is important for all of us to keep in mind. Because if we are participants in ministry, even if people know that we go to church, then the way we live our lives can very easily reflect negatively on the work that God is doing. And it's tragic, but it happens all the time. Somebody knows someone, and they're very verbal about being Christians. And, oh, they're inviting you to, here's my church. And then this same person rips you off in business. You hire them to come and do some work on your house, and they don't show up, or they do shoddy work. And I bet if I ask for a show of hands, most of us here have been ripped off by a Christian at one time or another. And I know people who won't even do business with Christians because it's happened to them so many times. And I'm not against someone in business identifying themselves as a Christian. I'm not at the point where if they have a fish on their sign, I go, forget it. But when, when somebody starts trying to sell me and pitch me, and they're trying to bro me down, you know, and like, and talk all the language and everything. I just get a little suspicious because it's just happened too many times. And that's a tragedy. And, you know, if you are a crook, if you're a lazy person, if you're undependable, if you are a hypocrite, um, I want you at our church but I don't want you to tell people that you go to our church. <laughs> On the other hand, I hear all the time people who say, hey, I met a guy, I met a lady, I met a girl from your church. And I was so impressed with them. They were so friendly, they, were, they went way out of their way to help me. And I'm like, yeah, those are the people I want to tell where they go to church. But Paul had this sense that I'm careful because I know I, rep, I, I represent not only Jesus Christ, 
but specifically a whole lot of people that I'm involved with in ministry and a whole lot of different areas where I'm trying to communicate gospel. And Paul would rather suffer great personal loss than to have him end up making the ministry look bad. And sometimes if you're in a situation, and I, a lot of times um, Anne won't understand this very well with me because if somebody gives us bad service or rips us off or whatever, I won't go after them and I don't make a big issue of it. I just kind of you know, let it go. And, and, and sometimes it seems like weakness, but I'm very conscious of the fact that once somebody knows I'm a Christian, and then especially if they know I'm a pastor, I don't want to give them any excuse to say that, man, I did business with a pastor and he was the most difficult customer ever. Or I waited on his table and he gave me a really lousy tip. Or I saw a guy, I recognized his voice from K-Wave and he was returning a product and just being a real jerk about it. I would rather eat a bad product and I would rather tip well to a waitress or a waiter who gives me terrible service than to give somebody a story that sounds really well as to their excuse why they don't believe in Jesus because a guy who represents Jesus treated them poorly. Now, you can't always make that absolute because sometimes, no matter how far you bend over backwards, there are some people who are going to end up being mad at you anyway. But the point is, Paul's effort was, I'm always thinking I represent Jesus Christ, and I represent his ministry and his message, and I want to bend over backwards to make sure that nothing that I do makes that look bad. I'll, I'll take a lot of abuse rather than run the risk of making Jesus look bad or making our church look bad or making Christians look bad. And so that was Paul's basic principle for ministry, and it's a good one. And if you have ever told anyone that you're a Christian, and if anyone knows that you go to church, think about it. What they think of church will sometimes almost exclusively be determined by their impression of you. If there's someone who never smiles and can't take a joke and they're a Christian, oh man, that makes a great story. And that'll be told to others who will tell it to others who will tell it to others. Yeah, this person is trying to tell me about the joy of the Lord, but they're the most miserable person around. We live next door to him. I hear him yelling at his family all the time. I, you know, one time I saw him coming out of a bar. One time I, people love those kinds of stories and they'll twist it and exploit it in a hundred different ways. Sometimes you can't avoid some of that. But Paul's heart was, I want to make sure that I don't give anyone reason to stumble. Pastor Romaine used to tell me, when people are shooting at you, they're usually doing it with bullets that you gave them. 
And I've been shot with bullets that I gave people plenty of times, and I just had to eat it. And so for all of us, we should recognize we represent Jesus Christ. Now, representing Jesus Christ and his grace does not mean that we are perfect. I don't have a problem with people seeing me blow it, necessarily. But it's how I handle it when I blow it. My message of the gospel is not that I'm perfect because of what Jesus did. My message is, I am a sinner just like you are, but I have received grace. So the real issue is not whether you're perfect. The real issue is whether you will show grace to the same extent that you've claimed to have received it. So people who have received God's grace and then they're very ungracious to others send a really confusing and mixed message. Man, if you blow it, if you blow your stack with somebody in public or someone you work with or whatever, then be the first one to take it back. That's better sometimes than if you were just trying really hard to be perfect because they need to see that you're real. I don't say deliberately punch somebody and then apologize and impress them with grace, but don't worry, you're going to mess up. But it's really how you handle when you're wrong that gives you a chance to demonstrate God's grace. That if people know that you're having problems with your kids, you're open about it. You don't pretend like your family's perfect, but you let them know what you do with that, where you go with it. You let them know that, that you take it to the Lord. Sometimes I'll ask non-Christians to pray for me People that I know aren't Christians. I'm going through a tough time. I'll go, yeah, you know, I'm really, I'm having a tough week. Could you pray for me? And they're like, uh, yeah, I'll be thinking of you. You know, they don't really know what to say. But see, to me, that is a gracious opportunity. It doesn't look like, look at me, I'm better than you. It just says, look at me, I've been, I know about forgiveness. And I'm, and I'm quick to ask for it. And I'm quick to extend it. I'm not a bitter and angry person. Um, and, and that's the heart of Paul. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. But at the same time, what he didn't want people to see in him was hypocrisy and phoniness, as he will say later if we make it through this chapter. So, <laughs> we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. Value the ministry enough to avoid giving people reasons to reject it. But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God. He said, in everything I do, I I want to act commendably as a servant of God. I want people to see me and think, that's someone who wears ministry well. That's someone who, whatever it is their faith is, it looks good on them. It works, it works for them. It's, it's, a, it's a commendable thing, even if they choose to reject it themselves. And then he begins to describe ministry so that you don't ever get an idea that, oh, ministry is just always a blessing, always pleasant. You know, it's just uh, the kinds of impressions you get from the you know, possibility thinkers and the 
um, name it and claim it kind of people and everything. And, and God bless them. I, I, I guess I'm thankful there are people like that. Because if I'm getting up in the morning and moving really slow, um, I don't mind a few minutes of Joel Osteen or something just to get me pumped up. But, um, you know, it'd be like you'd get hypoglycemic if you, if you had an o- overly huge diet of some of that kind of stuff. But Paul wasn't that. He wasn't like, oh, you're going to love this. This is great. He goes, I'm going to be really honest with you what ministry is like. He says... As, as ministers of God in much patience. Don't you hate to hear that right off the bat? If you're going to represent God, you better be patient. Patience is something none of us really want. But if we want it, we want it now. <laughs> but he goes, this is going to take time. Some of, the, some of the most important lessons of life will be learned while you're waiting I was just visiting yesterday a a woman who, she had had a car accident and her back was messed up and so she ended up having to have major back surgery and so went and visited her in the hospital yesterday and she's just laying there and can't move and it's just difficult and, and you know, I told her, I said, you think, man, being on your back and being, you know, knocked out like this and everything, that it would be so good because you could just lay there and commune with God. You can pray for people. You can meditate. God's going to speak to you in glorious ways. But I said, to be honest with you, whenever I'm laid up, that just doesn't happen. I just lay there. I can't hear from God. I have a hard time praying. I can't read. I can't. I'm just. I just have to wait. But I and she goes, that's exactly how I feel, Dave. And I. And I said, well, that's why they call you a patient, (laughs) because you are learning to wait. And that's all you have to do right now is just wait. And I told her at the same time, after you come through all of this, the lessons are going to be abundant. But while you're in the middle of it, not so much. It's just about being patient. And sometimes God puts us in a place where it seems like he's not doing anything in our lives but he's teaching us one of the most important qualities that we could have, and that is patience. God just doesn't hurry because we're in a hurry. He just doesn't do that. And so often we'll be in a situation where God's saying, be patient. It's so important to learn patience when you're talking about ministry because you want God to use you, and then you know someone who, ooh, I really want to share with them. And you just can't find the opening. So you start to force the opening. You know, they go, so did you watch the World Series last night? And you go, no, you know, because the angels weren't in it. Speaking of angels, you know, we're... (laughs) No, God wants us to minister in really natural ways. And a lot of times that's patience. That might mean just being nice to someone and friendly to them for a long period of time until God opens a door, until they say something. And, and God will, if you're praying for someone and praying for an opportunity to share with them, God's going to end up opening up a hole that a Mack truck could drive through eventually. It just works that way. But first, you have to be patient. You have to lay groundwork. You have to establish a track record. You have to show a lifestyle of concern and consistency. If you're witnessing at work, 
nobody's going to listen to you until at least you have gained their respect as a professional or as a worker in whatever it is that you're doing. It starts there, and that's the hard work because that takes time. We just want to leapfrog past that, but no, it's laying the groundwork. And so patience always comes early on in the process, but we hate it. In much patience, and then he says, in tribulations. That word there means pressure. Ministry, some of the greatest opportunities for ministry will involve a lot of pressure. When the pressure is on, when there's a time crunch, when there's stress of one type or another, those are the times when ministry is the most welcomed sometimes. God may be using pressure to get someone ready to hear the message. And he also may be putting pressure on you to get you ready to be able to share the message. And, and many of you have recognized this, sometimes through your own trials, God prepares you to minister to someone else who's eventually going through a similar trial. So that, you know, as Paul says, that you can comfort others with the comfort with which you've been comforted. So I may be going through tribulation, I may be under pressure, and it may last for a long time, and I don't, want, I don't like being patient with that kind of pressure. But I know that if you've hung in there with God, you've had this happen where you thought you were going to lose it because you were losing your patience, and the pressure was about to crush you and out of that came an amazing opportunity to be able to share with someone who they themselves were under pressure too, were going through tribulation, and were getting impatient. And God allows you to come along and say, let me tell you my story. And they listen to your story, and they go, whoa, what I'm going through is nothing. And you can say, but I'm still here, and I'm coming through on the other end of that. And, I, and so that's preparation for ministry often involves tribulation or pressure. It comes with the territory. So if you can't learn to be patient under pressure, then you're probably going to miss some of the best opportunities to represent Christ in, in this ministry of reconciliation. And Paul definitely knew about pressure. And he said, in needs... You don't always have everything that you need. You will always eventually get what you need, and sometimes the hand of God in providing for your needs is the whole point. But until you need something, he can't provide for your need. And so the life of serving God and representing him is a life where again and again you'll be aware of your needs, and you'll have to be patient despite the needs that you have that you don't see how God is going to provide for them. And as you're patient, you'll see that he will, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory, which are in Christ Jesus. But we all want to talk about how God supplies our needs. None of us wants to get to the point where we actually have needs that need to be supplied. But it's not supplying your needs if you already have more than you could ever need. You'll never know what it is to have your needs supplied. 
But boy, when your assets start drying up and you realize, I actually have real needs here, now you're opening the door to seeing what God's going to do. And it's a privilege to be needy for God and to see God meet that need. To not just go try to find somebody else to meet it, but to say, God, I'm just going to tell you about this and I want to see how you come through. And he will. He always does. And afterwards, you'll look back and go, it was kind of cool having that need because I never needed God like I did when I felt like my back's against the wall. And so Paul understood that and he knew it and he goes, that comes with the territory. Don't think it's weird because you have needs. Needs are the doorway to miracles from God. In distresses, that word distresses means tight places. The walls are closing in on you. Literally, it means a narrow place. You're going through a rock canyon and it's getting closer and it's like, I don't know if I can fit through this. Paul said, that's the laboratory of ministry. God's going to have to make it tight sometimes in order to open a door for him to use you. In stripes, that is the scars that come, the, the beatings. In imprisonments, Paul knew about that. In tumults, Tumult is a word that means just confusing disorder. And, you know, think of like going to Walmart on a Saturday or going to Costco right before Christmas. It's just like the noise just drives you nuts. The, the busyness, the jostling, the, you can't even think straight because of all of the frenzy of activity and Paul's saying sometimes ministry feels like that. You're running in every direction at once, and you're hearing so many different voices and so many different sounds, and everyone wants a piece of you, and you feel like you're just being torn apart by all the needs and by all the opportunities and by all the demands, and the tyranny of the urgent is just crushing you, and the, just, this, just, this, just this relentless confusing noise that's in the back of your head. And he goes, yeah, it is that way. You're not imagining that. It's a part of it. In labors, literally that word in the Greek means beatings. Um, it came to metaphorically mean working so hard that you're just beating yourself up or beating yourself to death. Paul may have meant it literally, but you know he had already said stripes, um, and that's why some people figure he must be meaning it in a more general sense to use it so quickly afterwards in the sentence. Um, but life has a way of beating you up, sometimes literally, but a lot more times, you know, you go through stuff and you feel like at the end of the day, like I'm actually sore. I'm actually, I feel like I've been being hit. I'm, I'm feeling beat up. And Paul knew what that was like. And that didn't deter him from wanting to carry the message of the gospel. In sleeplessness, you bet, sometimes you just can't sleep because your mind is racing about everything that's going on and, you're, and, and you just 
can't find that place of peace that you want. In fastings, just either forced fasting because you don't have anything to eat. Most of us could benefit from that. Um, Or deliberately being desperate enough to see God work that you choose to fast so that your prayers will be enhanced. The the Bible teaches that as well. But then he kind of shifts gears in verse 6 and kind of talks about how he responds to these things. Because anyone can go through (coughs) distressing, pressing, tribulation, tumult, beatings, and just be a victim. But Paul responded to it by purity. He allowed the trials in his life to actually purify him, to improve him, to cause him to grow. He saw that the time of need was an opportunity to get rid of things he didn't need. Often we think we need a lot more than we do. And God tightens things down a little bit, forcing us to tighten our belts. And ultimately, we find out it's actually a good thing. Oh, no, I don't know if I can pay my cable bill this month. You know, that might purify things for you a little bit, simplify things. Just have to watch with an antenna. (laughs) By knowledge. There's, there are always things to learn, no matter what you're going through. And Paul's attitude was, if I'm going to be getting knocked around and beat up, I want to learn whatever I can from the experience. I want to apply what I know from Scripture to what I'm experiencing in my life. By long suffering, again, the idea of patience comes up, but macrothumia is the Greek word here. And it means just when you're overheating and, and breathing hard and passionate, thumia, um, but macro, long. You're like, yeah, the volume is increased and this is happening, but I'm going to have a long fuse. I'm not going to let this cause me to explode. I've been going through a very passionate time for quite a while, and I'm determined to see how long I can go. This is going to stretch me. This is going to help me to grow by kindness. I don't care how hard of a time we're going through, being kind to others will always make it feel better. Getting it out off your chest by blowing up at somebody else only makes the hard times that you're going through feel like you just wasted them. You went through it for nothing. Anyone can go through a hard time and blow their stack. Not everyone can go through a trial and still be nice. And it's a huge accomplishment when someone can go through a difficult time and still be nice about it. I've seen my wife Ann do this in an amazing way. She's been through some real trials lately and lately some problems with some oral surgery she had that went bad and she couldn't smile or laugh or talk and But she's been so nice through the whole thing. She hasn't been cranky with me. She's been concerned for me. Um, Maybe the quiet I've taken as niceness too. But but still, it's like I've been so impressed that when she's going through a trial, she's being really kind to me and to others. And it hasn't been easy. I know that. But I see God working in her life. And that's the way we're supposed to do it. 
because you're going to go through a trial no matter how you respond to it. But if you go through a trial and you respond like a jerk, you're just going to be left with this empty feeling like I just did this for nothing. But to celebrate the victory of going, I felt terrible today, but nobody knew it because I was nice to everyone. I mean, that's victory. That's faith. And he goes on to say, by the Holy Spirit, and this is the only way it can happen, being filled with the Spirit, being plugged into him, allowing him to do this work. Paul would be the first one to say, I couldn't have taken what I took if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit inside me. By sincere love, literally by unfaked agape. I didn't fake my love, I really meant it. I felt lousy, but I really did care about people, and I wasn't pretending to. I wasn't putting on an act. The Spirit of God, working the fruit of the Spirit in my life, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, right off the top. It actually happened. I didn't have to fake it. If you feel like you have to fake love, then you got to figure out what's wrong. Somehow you're missing out on something that God wants to do in your life through the Holy Spirit. And he never says, just, just pretend. Go to the source, receive from him, commune with him, and let him give you that love. By the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness, on the right hand and on the left. God's word, his power, the whole armor of God, as we studied in Ephesians, on all sides. Verse 8, by honor and dishonor. I want to be consistent whether I'm being honored or whether I'm being dishonored. Am I the same person if people respect me (coughs) as I am when they disrespect me? Paul didn't want you to be able to tell the difference. Honor or dishonor, it's fine. Again, one of the old sayings, I heard it from Romain, I don't know if he invented it or not, but he said, you'll really find out if you have the heart of a servant when people treat you like a servant. (laughs) We all want to be servants, but none of us want to be treated like one. Paul's attitude was, hey, honor or dishonor, bring it on, I'm looking for consistency in my life and in my witness. By evil report and good report. People say good things about you, they'll say bad things about you. That doesn't change this, because this isn't about you. This is about what Jesus Christ has done. This is about the fact that you're a co-laborer with him. And so what they say about you isn't the issue, shouldn't be. And then he, he says, as deceivers and yet true. He said, sometimes it just sounds like it's phony, but it's the truth. I'm willing, in other words, to be misunderstood, but I always wanted to speak the truth. And then he says, as unknown and yet well-known. Yeah, there are times when what you do for the Lord will make you to be in complete obscurity, but he said, but I was never unknown because God knows me. And ultimately, God's people will know me 
People who are genuine are going to see what I'm made of. And the fact that that doesn't make me famous, Paul didn't care. Paul had no idea of how well-known he would become after he was dead. But he wasn't motivated by that. He wanted to be consistent, no matter whether anybody ever heard of him or not. If he had wanted to be famous, he would have ministered to the Jews. Instead, he went and ministered to the people they despised. As dying, and behold, we live. Paul was stoned several times, shipwrecked. Everybody thought he was dead. But he was like the Energizer Bunny, just kept ticking, kept moving forward. He seemed to have nine lives like a cat. As chastened, the word there is the word for as you'd spank a child and yet not killed. I'm being spanked all the time, but it's not going to kill me. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I would have every reason to sorrow, and in fact, I feel sorrow. Jesus did. He was described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You can't know what he knew without your heart being just wrenched with sorrow. You can't look at this world with eyes wide open and not have a, a sorrow that's there for the people who are suffering, for the people who reject Jesus Christ, and yet you choose to rejoice. You make that choice. You celebrate what God is doing, even when you have a broken heart, even when you're in a place where you would have every reason to just fall down on your face and cry, you choose to rejoice. Because there is always plenty to rejoice about, um, even in the midst of all kinds of pain. As poor, yes, serving God will cost you a lot. Yet making many rich. Paul understood that he gave up a lucrative life in order to be a minister. But he said, serving God made me poor, but I was able to give people more riches than I ever could have given them if I was teaching them how to be rich or if I was hiring them or instructing them on how to be successful. But it was in real riches, things that would last for eternity. As having nothing and yet possessing all things. And that's the life of serving God. Giving him first place in your life. Deciding that he is what matters most. It's a life of pain and pressure and difficulty and sometimes hunger and sorrow. But it's a life of unspeakable wealth and unspeakable joy and an amazing capacity to be able to add value to other people's lives. And ultimately, that's more rewarding than anything you could ever accumulate for yourself. Now he says in verse 11, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. 
He said, I'm just being honest with you guys. And he said, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm not trying to cramp your style. You're free as far as I'm concerned, and I've told you that, and I've ministered to that, that to you many times. But he said, there is something that's restricting you, and it's your own passions, your own lust, your own desires is what's holding you back. You think that when I preach the truth to you, it's messing up your fun? But what I share with you is designed to set you free from that which really does have you trapped. And that's what God is doing in all of our lives. And by the way, every time we lose something, every time we experience pain or loss or suffering, it's all involved with setting us free. It's all involved with him helping us to lose our grip on that which is destroying us. You're restricted by your own affections. The things you care about is really what's messing you up. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. He says, I'm being open to you. Now, will you be open to the fact that maybe some of the things you care about are actually problems for you? And then he gives this statement. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial or the devil? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. <clears throat> Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The word for unbelievers is the word pistis, which means to trust or to have faith. And then the A at the beginning of it, it's apistis, people who don't trust, people who don't believe, people who don't have faith. And he said, some of the problems that you guys have is because of your connections through your affections with people who don't have the same trust that you have, who don't have the same faith that you have, and it's creating an unequal yoke. A yoke was one of those things they would lay across the necks of animals. And you would try to match up animals that were of similar size because if you have a really large oxen on one side and a small one on the other side, the thing's going to go in circles because the big oxen is going to pull too far. You want to be going in the same direction. His idea here is don't link yourself up with people who are going to pull you off track. And the suggestion is, and the context is, God has a message for you to deliver. He has ministry for you to perform. Be really careful who you link arms with in doing that because your affection for those who are going in a different direction than you are can pull you off track and mess up what God wants to do in your life. Now, we often use this passage to talk about marrying a non-Christian, and this certainly applies, but that's not what it's about. It's much more general than that, and it's 
again, in the context, it's talking about how you can become trapped by your affections and how your connections with others that come because of your affection can pull you away from the kind of focus that you need to serve God and to be used by Him. It could be a business partnership. It could be a marriage. It could be a friendship. It could be an activity. There are all sorts of possibilities. But I also don't think necessarily it's wrong to be in a business partnership with a non-Christian. And I think that there are some people even who, even though I think it's a real bad idea to marry a non-Christian if you're a Christian, I mean, how can you have deep fellowship with somebody who thinks that, that what you live for is, is a lie? But there are people who make that mistake or who become a Christian and their spouse still isn't a Christian. And I don't think it necessarily makes it an unequal yoke. It just I know people who, there are people in our church who are wonderful Christians. Their spouse isn't a Christian, but their spouse is, spouse is totally supportive of them being a Christian. And they don't really pull them down. It's not God's best. It's not what it would be. And you pray that God will end up causing them both to have an equal relationship with the Lord. But what he's saying here is much more general and, and really much more critical and much more applicable than just that. Because what he's saying is, don't allow anyone to pull you off track. God has called you for specific purposes. Now, don't let affection for anything else get in the way of your obedience to God. And that... Some of the most unequal yokes I've ever seen, for instance, in marriage, are two Christians who are pulling in different directions. I'm always amazed when I see people who are married and they're Christians and they're like so proud that they've stayed together for all these years for the kids and the grandkids and whatever, and yet they're totally not together. They, they aren't supporting each other. They just think they're going to win some trophy when they get to heaven for how long they endured each other. And ultimately, there's a choice. And you have to obey God rather than men. Jesus even talked about people who would, if, in order to follow God, who would actually leave their, their wife. <laughs> wow. Now, don't go running off and doing that. But it's an extreme case. But the point is to live your life with such resolve that no one is going to pull you off task. No one's going to pull you off track. No, one, no connection with anyone else, no influence from anyone else is going to serve as your excuse for not going forward with what Jesus Christ has called you to do. You're not doing anyone a favor if you blame somebody else for the fact that you're dragging in the dust. You lead. You obey. You do what God has called you to do. And as he says, be careful because sometimes, and, and there where he says, um, what part has a believer with an unbeliever? The, it's the word a believer is pistis, somebody who trusts, and an unbeliever is a pistis, somebody who doesn't. 
And at some point, you have to decide, are you going to live a life of faith? Are you going to be a trusting person? And there are a whole lot of people who could get in the way of that (coughs) by their lack of trust and their lack of faith. And you can't make them not be that way, but you can certainly decide, I am not going to let someone else's lack of faith cause me to lose mine. I'm going to stay steady on track with God because he has given me this ministry of reconciliation. He has shown his grace to me, and I'm not going to use anybody else as an excuse for why I am not on track with what God has called me to do. And, and that is, it's important for all of us. And the message isn't so much, be careful that you don't make unequal yokes. The message is, be so determined at what God is calling you to do that no yoke is going to pull you off that trail. Now, certainly, to link up with people who are people of faith, (laughs) that's crucial. And believe me, this is as important in the church as it is out of the church. There are sometimes when God begins to do something in your heart, and there are some people, well-meaning Christians, who if you share your ideas with them, they'll tell you a hundred reasons why it won't work. They just don't have the faith. There are some people you can't wait to tell them hey, I think God is telling me this, because they're going to go, go for it. That's awesome. That's great. They're going to share that faith. Well, those are the kinds of associations that strengthen us. And those are the kinds of people that we ought to try to be. We should aspire to be those who, when someone comes along with their faith, that we don't put a wet blanket on it, but that we go, hey, if God's, even if it sounds like a little bit of a kooky idea, hey, if If God's in it, man, go for it. Because I would rather any day have someone put all of their effort into something that ends up not working, but they did what they felt God was telling them to do, rather than to be the one who throws the brakes on, and then they're always wondering, what if I, you know, and, and and I've learned that when I'm following God, if my intention is to follow him, then even if it doesn't go the way I think it will, I feel so good about having gone down that trail and pursued that and believed in it. There is value in faith that goes way beyond just where the faith takes you. And so that's his emphasis here, and I, I could have spent more time on it, but you know, I already told him to put chapter 6 on the, on the CD, so um, there you go. <laughs> But we, we do need to be careful who influences us. And we need to be the kind of people who influence others. It's a great feeling when you're working together. Because remember, this whole thing started by saying we are co-laborers. And it's a great feeling when you can link arms with somebody and go, come on, let's do this. And you have that experience of seeing someone for the first time being used by God and serving God. And it's because you encourage them to do it, you know, you could go, oh, it's an unequal yoke. No, it's not. You're leading them along. You're being an example to them. That's all Paul was trying to be. That's, what, that's where his heart was. And so then he, 
he wraps it up by saying, God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I'll be their God and they'll be my people from Ezekiel 37. And then from Isaiah 52, um, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. And then quoting from 2 Samuel where God was talking to David, promising about his seed, I'll be a father to you, you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The point of all that, he says, hey, if you're going to serve God, people ought to see a difference in you. It's not that, oh, don't touch anyone who's unclean. Jesus touched unclean lepers, Jesus touched dead people who were unclean. But when he touched dead people, they came to life. When he touched lepers, they were healed. And so we are called to go out there and carry the message of reconciliation. But at the same time, he says, they need to see a difference in you. By being separate, it's not that I don't have anything to do with them. (laughs) Not at all. It's that I am infiltrating their world with the message that can bring them to reconciliation. And everything that I do and everything that I am, I want to fit with a model that makes that message feasible and credible and believable. And the way I live my life, I don't want to in any way contradict the message that I'm sharing. When people look at us, they should notice a difference. If they haven't noticed a difference yet, maybe keep your mouth shut until they start to notice a difference. And that's going to open a door that you could drive a truck through with the message of reconciliation, with the message of grace. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. What a great chapter this is. And Lord, I know... um, There's so much more that could be said here, but Lord, I want you to say it. And so I pray that everyone who's here would soak up what this says and maybe later go back and just read through this chapter. And any points that were missing or any things that you wanted to say, God, it would be awesome if you would just say it to them personally. It would mean so much more than if I say it. So Lord, teach us the truth that was all about Paul and his ministry and his heart. And help us to be separate. Help us to stand out in our world and to not allow our affections for anyone or anything to pull us off track. But help us to go through whatever it costs us to represent you well. Thank you for the privilege of representing you. In Jesus' name, amen.